Lucky you. Best 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barkies, Sandys. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing. I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) (laughs) Whoop. Let's start again. Hey, Alternate Shots fans. uh, We've got an interesting podcast episode today from a real genuine PGA Tour pro. And he's now been for many, many years the head golf coach at University of Illinois. Welcome, Mike Small. Morning, Bob. Good to talk to you. You know, you got into this crazy game. How old were you when you got into it? When did you get good? Well, I played all sports growing up. So 70s and 80s, we played a lot of sports. And after I went through all of them, I gravitated towards golf. Now, I played, finished playing basketball and golf in high school, but um, I was a baseball freak early. And my baseball teammates in Little League got me involved in golf, actually. So I loved the game. My dad was a basketball player and got into golf late. You know, I tinkered with it with with him, and I liked it, but it, I was doing all the team sports. It was cool to play baseball and football and basketball like I did. And But the older I got, the more I gravitated towards it. And about when I was about, what, probably 13, 14, I really started getting serious about it. The once into college, was focusing on golf full-time. And I just loved the game. I loved the, not only the individual part of it, um, but just the, the compressing of the golf ball and the putting and the chipping and the smell the green grass in the mornings and the bright shiny white golf balls you took them out of the package you know and just the old the golf shoes back in the day the leather golf shoes with the spikes on them and the foot joys the heavy leather foot joys with the spikes on them it was just a cool world that i had never really spent much time in and and i got i loved the pga tour back when i was a kid couldn't wait for saturday afternoons at three o'clock central for the show to you know for the tour to come on for two hours all we had was what four or five hours a weekend um you know in the middle of the winter in illinois to watch golf and everything around it just just was a magnet to me and and um i practiced it and played it and i was a decent athlete and, and got good at it and just kept getting better and better did you figure out a way to practice in those brutal illinois winters because i know it's easy now but when you grew up i don't know maybe you had a you know, an old gymnasium and somebody let you hit into a, you know, like a wrestling padded wall or something like that, right? Did you have any hitting facilities? No, in the 70s, we had nothing. I mean, you just cut, quit cold turkey. And it's weird, though, the winters were longer back then than they are now. It's the strangest thing. I mean, we're playing golf into November now and March 1st, we're out again. But back then, it seemed like, you know, October, end of October came and then, you know, April didn't come until forever. And but my mind was always on golf, but didn't play till April. So it was a six or seven month sport back then. So we didn't have any facilities. Uh, the facilities now, obviously, that we have here on campus at Illinois are just off the charts, world-class. I mean, I, it's just phenomenal. And There's golfers who play golf and there's golfers who play golf who compress the ball, or I like to say have a lag. When did you know you had the lag where that helps in compressing the ball? Because I think 90% of people don't have a lag. They just kind of use their arms and shoulders and they get the ball going somewhere. And they Yeah, that's fine. That's just the way to play. That's, that's the social way to play and the fun way to play. But, you know, if you want to be good and you want to keep taking your game to the next level and, you know, compete at a high amateur level or turn pro and try to make some money off this game, you have to compress it. But I think you have to compress it more nowadays than you had to before. 
I think the equipment has gotten so good and so advanced. Uh, back in the day, a lot fewer people could compress it, but the game was more of an art then. And I try to tell my players this, and we just kind of laugh and joke about times and things. And, you know, back then, persimmon woods, balada balls, the ball would spin. It'd, get a lot, it'd be up in the air forever. It'd be changing directions. It'd be coming back at you into the wind. It'd spin so much. So I think back then, the art, good hands, um, good touch, uh, creativity, you know, just some just pure talent maybe was more needed back then. And very if you compressed it back then, you were already an elite player. I mean, it was hard to do. I didn't start probably compressing it till I started getting the, understanding the game and getting some better instruction and learning it myself. But I learned to score. I learned just to get it around and, and chip and putt. And that's kind of the way I learned to survive in the game at an early age. And then the better I got, the more I got better and it was around better players in college. And once I turned pro and played the mini tours for a bunch of years back in the day when there's only one mini tour to play, I mean, you're around the best players. I was I was always able to evolve and to adapt to people around me. I would I I go to another level, and I'd get beat up pretty good. But then I'd problem solve. I'd figure it out. I would, I would adapt and I would learn to compete and then succeed. The next level I would go to, I'd get beat up and I would have to circle the wagons and figure it out. And um, it's just kind of the way my career was. You played in the Nike Tour. You had two wins. In the Nike Monterey Open, you beat a pretty good player, Chris DeMarco. That's that's a good chip to have on your shoulder. I'm sure you might remind him from time to time when you see him. Oh, well, you're bringing up some old memories there, which is great. But, uh, yeah, the, the Nike Tour is was the, is the Corn Ferry. It's evolved. The name has changed over the years. But, yeah, it's deeper. I mean, I think golf in general, competitive golf in general is deeper and stronger now than it ever has been. But, you know, back then, I think, you know, I, Chris and I joke to this day, He, I'll never forget, you know, I won twice on that tour in 1997. We both got our PGA Tour card in 1998. I ended up losing my card, and he stayed out there and made millions and, you know, was running up in the Masters a couple times, and he went on to have a great career, and he's just the ultra competitor, too. We played against each other in college when he was at Florida and I was at Illinois. Um, um, but he always jokes the one guy he couldn't beat was me because I think he finished second or third in, 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 in both the events I won that year on, on, on the Nike Tour, which is, you know, the Corn Ferry Tour. He was the runner-up both times. The players back then, if you go look at the players back then, they have all evolved into great major champions and winners on on the tour in the in the late in the you know early two thousands. And uh, it's just time evolves, and um, it was the place to be. And once I won those two events, or really the first one in Monterey, uh, it was a, it was a sense of validation. You know, I'd won on the Hooters tour before that, but not not really a, had great success. Just kind of got better every year. But when I won that event, it it changed my it changed my course of my life really when it came to professional golf. I, I played and practiced so hard as a, as a touring professional <clears throat> to get on the PGA tour and to have that success. That was chasing that dream. And then when I lost my card, it wasn't quite the same back on the, back on the web.com tour. I think at the time, it, the name always changes, but I was down that back there as a past champion and decided maybe I needed to do something else and take a break from golf. And the university of Illinois uh, came calling about coming back and trying to build this program up to where it was when Steve Stricker and I were on the same teams together. In the, in the late 80s. And I thought I'd do it for maybe for a few years. And if I liked it, great. If I didn't, I'd go back to playing. And uh, man, I needed a break because I had just lost my tour card. And like I said, professional golf is not the same once you've experienced the PGA Tour and then you're back on the lesser tours. It's interesting. I, mean, I had my chances, Bob. I had my opportunities. And um, again, I, I probably wasn't 
I wasn't as good a player then as I was when I came started coaching and I started making more cuts and making more money on the PGA Tour and in majors when I was coaching. So I learned a lot. I'm a, I've always been a late learn, a, a, a slow learner, I guess, a late bloomer or a slow learner, however way you want to call it. But um, I, I I played better since I've been coaching and but I, I, I in a sadistic way I coach and I play and I get motivation out of my failures than I do my successes and I coach a lot from perspective of things I didn't do very well. And I learned that I needed to do better when I was on tour. And I think that's really benefited my guys on my team over the years and how they've all gone on to play great professional careers is I think it's the little things, the little things that kids don't, young players don't realize or pay, pay attention to and address until it's too late. I think you got to care just enough. I don't think you can get, you know, if, if you care too much and that may have been, may, may, may have been my issue. Um, when I finally got, you know, I played the mini tours for all those years. And then like I said, what if we won on the corn Ferry tour and then got up onto the PJ tour? Um, it was me, myself and my game 24 seven. And it consumed me. And it got to a point where the more you want something, the harder you work at something, the harder it becomes. And I use the phrase with my team a lot when kids are struggling and they're trying to find things, you know, it reminds you when you're a kindergarten or preschooler. And you're trying to jam that square peg into that round hole and it just won't go. And you just keep fighting it and fighting it, pounding it, pounding it, pounding it, and screaming and yelling. And it's like, dude, just take a deep breath, chill out, think about a minute, calm down and put the square peg in the square hole and the round peg in the round hole and you're fine. You know, and that's kind of what um, I think you may be referencing to it's 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 when you care, it's a whole different ball game, And then you have to care just enough. You can't care too much. Long because playing fast and firm, but this rough is so dense. I got 18, honestly. I hit the best drive of the day, and I don't know what to do. And I'm trying to lay it up, but you can't, you can't determine your distance to lay it up. And I'm laying it up to the worst number I could have. Up the tightest, I think fairways like green is number one, especially closer to get to the green. So what's your yard, sir? Like 59 yards or something. You know, over water to a front end. I should have just played to the wrong, strong side. But I just want to beat and try to make a bar. I think I'm you mentioned that mentality of not being like that frame. Do you think this helps you kind of play free and let that hole go kind of thing? It does, but there's a little battle on myself because I'm so competitive and, mm -hmm. and I did it for so long that you want to do well. So you don't want to play badly. But um, I'm getting better at letting it go. So, yeah, Good when morning, I, coach. Thanks, Eric. When I when I um, when I lost when I lost my car and started coaching, I, I've made more cuts on the TJ tour, more cuts in majors, made more money than I did when I was playing full time. So figure that out. <laughs> but a reference to that number 18 there, I hit a really good drive. And this is a par four that was a par five that was converted to a par four for the championship. So you're landing your tee shot in a part of the fairway that's not designed to receive a tee shot. So it's really crowned and it's 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 sloped and it's very fast fairways. And I hit in the fairway and it rolled one, two inches, three inches into this. And there's no first cut into this deep, heavy rough. And I had to lay up over water to a certain number and I couldn't gauge my number. So I survived that shot. I got it out of the deep rough over a creek to a fairway, but it rolled down this fairway that's like a green so far that I had a bad number. That's bad 55 yards. That's a bad number for everybody, including 55. a professional, right? Oh, brutal. It was 55, 59 yards off a tightest lie you can ever imagine. It's like you're on a green uh, to a front pin, a green that's really rock hard sloping back to front that's a green that is designed for a par five shot so i had just in essence i had a, a third shot into a hole so i was playing it the way it was but i laid it up too close 
and I just hit a bad shot. And I mean, I, I chunked it and it went and bounced in and out of the water and I ended up making double, but you know, it's, it's, it's easier said than done. And I'm trying to make five. I'm not trying to make a, uh, I'm not trying to hold it out for three, but I'm trying to make a four or five. I hit a bad shot. And when the reporters get you after the round and you just come out of the scoring tent, which you can see behind there, you're always, you're a little running a little hot. And I think if I par the hole, I'm leading it. I'm leading it. If I bogey the hole, I'm leading it. And I think I was, I doubled it and I was one back maybe after the first round. And for a guy who comes out and, you know, is a part-time player and um, I've had some success in the champions tour. I've had some top tens and had some these reasonable finishes, but at this event, this major event, I wanted to play well. It was disappointing to have that finish. So take me into the eyes of two guys that haven't won majors but have incredible talent, Tommy Fleetwood and Xander Shelfley. You can't make rhyme or reason out of this sport, out of this game. There's so many variables. There's so much different. You know, unlike any other sport, um, the, the, the course or the court or the field you're playing is different every time. Um, the conditions are different. It's such a long season, a long career. Things happen so slowly. You have to initiate the action in every shot in this game. You know, you're like a pitcher um, in baseball. Um, you can't, you know, you don't react to a stimulus. You got to, you got to start the actions. What you mentioned, you early, mentioned earlier about pre-shot routine. That's why that's so in, important, is because you're initiating the action. So you put all these variables together over a point of a course of a career, where there's so many different things that are affecting the outcome. Um, and then you put pressure in at the majors and, and people elevate it. Some people honestly play better under pressure than others and some don't. And some play really well under pressure, but don't get the breaks. And and then that flips them around and they become, you know, then, then they start, you know, dealing with the pressure and, you know, adversely. And it's just so it's just the craziest game in the world. And you cannot you cannot grade, you cannot gauge your self-worth as a player just on on results. Now I know we do, and I know that's what you have to do. And that's what determines winners and losers, but inside your own mind, and inside your own heart, um, only you can grade yourself in out about how you think you emotionally handled and um, attacked and dealt with the pressure of major championships. Shifting to college golf. Let's say you were the Texas Tech golf coach the last 10 years. Now you got this kid Ludwig, Ludwig Oberg. And he just jumps out of your program in June. He's on the PGA Tour. He's on. He's beyond on fire. Beyond on fire. What What do you think if he said to came back to you after winning on the European Tour, winning on the PGA Tour, winning on the Ryder Cup? What would you say to him if he called you up? Hey, coach, I don't know what I'm doing out here. I don't know if he'd call the coach and say I don't know what I'm doing, but I think that um, if he coach, you know, I think he'd call the coach up and say. I mean, if, if you did say that in that context, uh, like, you know, I'd say, well, then keep keep not thinking. Yeah. And, you know, keep doing what you're doing because I I, I think when players think, um, and you think too much, that's bad. And um, just just act and do it and go with your instincts and don't think too much. He goes through his routine and he's doomed. He's not as fast as Trevino, but he's pretty quick and he's and he's accurate. He's confident. He's very talented. He drives it like nobody I've ever seen. And he, but he's confident and he doesn't. It reminds me of a, of, of a saying that, you know, Strick, Strick and I were in school together, and I think he's one of the best players ever lived that didn't win a major. Um, because we were, you know, we went to number two in the world there for a while, and he's won, what, dozen times on tour. But, you know, he had a little valley in the middle of his career, people tend to forget, where he won twice before and then bottomed out and didn't win for four or five years and lost his card, had to go back to tour school. And then he, you know, rockets and wins 10 more times. And 
he told me one time he um, um, early in his career when he was playing good out of college, and I think he applied it to after he had his little uh, little little swale there. Yeah, because I asked him, you know, what what's the difference, Strick? You know, you won twenty, you know, you won as a twenty three year old or twenty five, whatever it was, twenty six year old. And I see he's a small A. I'm just not seeing trouble. I don't see trouble anymore. And that summed it all up to me that the good players do. They just don't see trouble. They just don't even acknowledge it. They just get up and they see where they want the ball to go, not where they don't want it to go. And I think the majority of players when they're struggling are seeing the ball going where they don't want it to go. And it was just a straight, simple answer to my question. Strick, what's the deal? What's what's this? What do you what what's what are you feeling? He says, I just don't see trouble anymore. And I don't think uh, you know. Ludwig is seeing any trouble. Have you seen a better short game or let's just say putter than Stricker in your life? I've seen a lot of great ones, but no, Strick's just natural. He's just a, an athlete. And he did, I, I saw for three years and as my teammate. And then obviously we played a lot of practice rounds together and we were on tour. And um, he is, uh, he's just like ultra competitive guy. I tell people that, um, you know, and Strick is the most highly regarded most liked player probably in the last 25 years one in, in that class uh, not an enemy in the world but deep down inside he is ultra competitive and he's an assassin he's, he's a likable assassin right yep he's shaking your hand he's patting you on the back he's happy for you but inside he is just frustrated and mad he didn't win and he's he's just is an ultra competitive person that just does it right and he's been a great inspiration for our team our players as an alum and um but yeah, he's his short game is just natural though. He's just he engages the bounce correctly. He's got the wit, the touch, the speed. I mean, he just it's just natural, and he's just a, it's just it's just pure to watch. What's your thought on the current state of golf? Well, again, I'm not in the know as much as people out there are. I'm not out there as much as I used to be. Obviously, I haven't played a PGA Tour event since 2017. I'm 50. I'll be 58 years old here in a couple of months, so I'm not in touch directly but i am through my players and i am you know in, in, the, in my profession obviously there's so much money it, it's it, there's a lot of parallels i think in professional golf right now along with NCAA sports money and tv money is changing the landscape and people are are being drawn to the money they're they're, they're changing the, the whole landscape is changing because of competition you should never tell a person where they can go make a living you should never tell a person how they should make a living as long as it's legal and so these players that are, you know, Lev has changed, address your question directly, has changed the landscape of professional golf. But you can't detract somebody from doing that, I don't think. If they want to do it, it's a free country, free world. They have to do it, but then they have to live within the rules that are applied on both tours. And I think the PGA Tour is competing, trying to save its brand, trying to um, compete. And LIV is in there putting a wrench in the thing, trying to compete, which in our sport, competition makes everybody better in the end. So I'm hopeful at the end of this this period we're in that the sport and professional golf is better because competition should make it better. But there's so much flux going on with with it that um, it's confusing to the person to see. I just hope that, that the fans and the sponsors don't get turned off by this money grab that's going on. And this and 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 get turned away from the sport because I think the attraction to golf over the years, the reason people have loved the game and the reason I think corporations and Fortune 500 companies have wanted to be involved in the game, is because of its charitable context, but also because of its capitalistic way the the game and the players are paid. 
that if you play well, you'll make a lot of money and you'll reap the rewards. And if you play poorly, you'll, you won't make a check that weekend. If you continue to play poorly, you'll lose your card and you don't survive. And that's capitalism, the, you know, a meritocracy. If you do well, you play well and you, and you, you, you earn well. If you don't, you find something else to do. And I think that's been the attraction to it. Now you have guys getting paid in the sport for not having to play well um, with the live stuff, which again, I'm not going to deny anybody that, that opportunity, but it goes away from the grain the game was originated and grown on, which I think attracted people. There's always a winner and loser and it's, it's, it's shown in your, in your earnings and it showed in, in how much you make. And I think corporations and people love seeing that and that's changing. So I hope through all this whole change, it doesn't, it doesn't lose the fans and the sponsorship, but I think it, hopefully it will turn out well in the end when competition kind of figures this thing out. That's right. And that's another point you're making, you know, along with the sponsors and along with the fans, the volunteers, the volunteers make these tournaments go. I mean, without the volunteers, without you showing up to help at Wingfoot, these things don't, they, they don't, they don't work. They don't, they don't, they don't get pulled off with all that volunteer. And if people get turned off by their perception of what's happening and, and that's what makes this message. So, you know, the message that's being put out about this state of, of, of professional golf right now has got to be correct. And if it's, if it puts people off, then you lose those volunteers and then the whole thing falls apart. I'm just wondering if Kevin Kisner is going to save TV golf because he just signed up with NBC. He's funny. He's a storyteller and he can play. i tell you what, he's had a great career and um, I've always been impressed with Kevin. I've played with him maybe once, I think. Um, but yeah, he's very witty got a great personality, calls it like it is. I think he's a perfect fit. I do have one last question. We talked about Oberg for a moment. How do you identify the next one of the next Ludwig and then go after and get him on the University of Illinois golf team? You don't ever know. You don't ever know. There's been recruits that every coach can say they've gotten. They thought he was a knockdown, guaranteed, bona fide star, and it never turned out. And there's kids that you bring on the team that, you're thinking, well, there may be a chance, but I don't have a lot of high hopes. And they become a first team All-American and a tour player. You just don't ever know because professional golf and, and reaching your potential in this game is so dependent on what's inside their heart, inside their soul, inside their 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 love and, and commitment to it. Because there's so much adversity. There's so much up and down. There's so much that can go wrong. How bad do you want it? How tough are you? This is a, I use it all the time and people know they associate our program with it. This is a blue collar sport wrapped up in a white collar look. I mean, you got to be a, a grinder, a tough guy and the talent to back it up. So when you're recruiting these kids, you had, you need the speed nowadays, you need the build, you need the compression, you know, the stuff you're seeing on the surface, but you try to get to know them inside. You try to get to know the ones that, that are, are aren't going to be distracted by other things in life that, that happen, that they're not bad, they're not wrong, but in order to be a champion, you can't get distracted by things in life. You have to stay focused on what you want to do and, um, and do it. Um, but you never know, man, there's guys on tour, the tour is full of guys that you didn't think would ever make there. And there's guys that are, 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 are the tour school this last week that you thought would be shoe-ins to stay there. You just don't ever know. That's what makes it great. And I think that's another a big magnetism to the sport. I appreciate you having me on. I do these from time to time for people and friends of mine. And um, I just follow your lead, Bob, and you do a great job. And <laughs> if you ever need me on again, let me know. But hopefully this added some some, um, some entertainment to people and maybe they enjoy listening. But my mind was always on golf, but didn't play till April. So it was a six or seven month sport back then. So we didn't have any facilities. 
Uh, the facilities now, obviously, that we have here on campus at Illinois are just off the charts, world-class. I mean, I, it's just phenomenal. And <laughs> Why are you laughing? Uh, uh, well, at least we have the laugh to add at the end. <laughs> right. We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs> that, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking my you. Brother, my brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.